Yes, hello out there, everyone. Welcome back to None But the Brave, presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And Flynn, more ticketing action going on today. Yeah, well, we had the verified fan thing, which went well for not a lot of our friends anyway. Uh, seems that they're almost uh, discriminating against people who have purchased a bunch of tickets. For example, in my household, uh, I got waitlisted. And uh, a, a burner account that I set up just for just for this purpose, it it was verified on its first choice, and then and then my wife got verified for her third choice. So, didn't work well for us, and it didn't work well for a lot of other people, apparently. Yeah, if you read Twitter, many many people tweeting about how they've seen twenty, thirty, fifty, a hundred shows. And they're not verified. And then you hear brand new accounts such as your burner account are verified. It's just really inexplicable. But as we've said before, they're not really weeding out resellers. They're mining data. Another part of the problem, and we discussed this back in July, so we won't go into it all again, but other acts are using verified fan, YouTube, Pearl Jam, but those acts also have fan clubs that allow you to bypass the verified fan. For example, YouTube at the Sphere it is a verified fan event, but they've already informed fan club members that they won't be subject to that. So at least give your dedicated fans an option where they can get tickets and not be told you can't even try for tickets. That is just so offensive that so many Springsteen fans, and we're hearing from them on Twitter, as I said, they're out there beyond Twitter. So many people who have been loyal fans, some going back decades, are told, sorry, you cannot even purchase a ticket or try to purchase a ticket. Of course, nobody's guaranteed to purchase a ticket. Right. Well, that's the worst thing. It's like, gee, thanks for buying tickets for these 50 other shows and over the course of the last 20 or 30 years, but no thank you on this one. It just makes no sense. You would think that they would look at uh, Ticketmaster accounts that have purchased 20, 30 pairs of tickets for, for shows over the years and make, make put them at the front of the line. But no, it, they seem to be doing the literally the exact opposite. And it's just it frustrating. Do, it does and, seem that way. And it's very frustrating, and it really puts a bad taste in our mouths, uh, especially coming off of the, the, the tickets fiasco, as some people call it, from last summer. And it just doesn't... It, it doesn't leave a good taste in, in our mouths right now. Well, look, I think we're going to be okay. We know we're going to be okay. So I don't want to get too wrapped up in this. The whole verified fan thing, this is not just Bruce, as I said. This is an industry problem now. And they have turned the ticketing process into something in 2023 that just sucks across the board. And it's impacting us because we're Springsteen fans. It's going to impact you two fans that aren't members of the fan club when it comes time to the Sphere shows. Obviously, we know what happened with Beyonce and Taylor Swift. This is just no way to handle it. And the rationale for it is just false. And if you look even at some of Bruce's other shows, the Wrigley shows, which went on sale, people were able to purchase tickets. They didn't do any verified fan there. They, they just put the tickets on sale and somehow they managed the load and the system didn't crash. And there's just no reason for this. And it, it's, it's Ticketmaster. It's the artist as well. But this is a system that just really should not be being used. Not, not at all. And I always like the reason they give they, to make sure that the real fans get, get it, get the tickets and not the bots. And, uh, that's just is a complete line of, of BS. And it's just well, and it's basically lying to our faces. 
it's just offensive because you're telling people, look at all the people tweeting at us who've seen a lot of Springsteen shows over the years and have purchased tickets from Ticketmaster for Springsteen, which should get you verified to say to them, you're not worthy even to try for tickets. I don't know. But I think let's just move on, talk about the tour and and concentrate on the music. We're not changing this. And it doesn't appear that any of the other fan bases are going to change it anytime soon. And it's just something we're all going to have to deal with. Yeah, you got to learn to live with what you can't rise above, right, Hal? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, he's uh, talking about the music. He has uh, waltzed across Texas, playing shows in Dallas, Houston, and Austin, as well as Kansas City and Tulsa. And we've gotten about, uh, what, five tour debuts over that time? I think the, Something like the that. Biggest, with the biggest one being If I Was the Priest in Houston. Nice video posted to, to Twitter, and yeah, Bruce came out, and he they rocked it, just like we thought they would. It, it sounded phenomenal, and and Steve was just was just shredding his solo at the end of the song. And it appeared again in the next night in Austin, disappeared in Kansas City, but then it came back in Tulsa. So I'm hoping it, it appears more often than, than it doesn't. First of all, If I Was a Priest was magnificent. Steve's guitar work was Great. I've heard both the Houston and the Austin performances now via the Nug streaming. And wow, that was really something. And to think that Bruce would be playing that song and sound as good as it does in 2023, who would have ever bet on that if you said that five years ago? Well, it's a, it's a hell of a, it's a hell of a rock song. And it's just amazing that uh, it sounds so good, as, as you said, written 50 years ago and just being played really now on a regular basis. And the other thing in general, just the band sounds magnificent. It really, listening to the shows on Nugs, it, it provides you with a different perspective than really what we saw in Tampa. Because when you're listening, if you close your eyes, there is just no way to think that these men are in their mid-70s. They, they sound like they are in their 30s. The performance is just, of the entire show, is fabulous. Now, there's been some concerns about the static set list. I, I think at least in part, that's probably caused by the COVID issues that they've been having. And, and hopefully now everyone is healthy and back and they're not going to experience anything like that again. So we'll have to see moving forward. But I really find what he's doing impressive. They sound great. All the reports that I feel like that I've read on BTX and Facebook and elsewhere, just rave, just raving about how great they sound and how, how great these, these performances are. And, and yeah, I've listened to a good chunk of the Houston show and yeah, they sound, they sound fantastic. The stat, the set list may not be uh, changing much. And, but when you're at the show, which is to whom Bruce is really playing, it's not static. You're seeing a very alive set list come at you and, and they're doing a great job on it. So there's really uh we obviously want the set list to open up at some point, and it will when they start doing some multiple multiple night stands in Europe and then obviously in the summer in the States, but uh, in Toronto, Canada, rather. But yeah, it's a phenomenal show, and uh, I'm looking forward to the next time I go, which I think is not until April now. Well, it's funny how people forget these things, because as you just mentioned, they debuted five songs over the last four shows or so, and that was while they were dealing with covid the Rising Tour went several weeks without basically a single change. The show was identical night after night after night. And nobody reacted it in the same way at the time. I think people understood they were getting the show under 
they were getting the show right. And obviously they had some issues at the start of the rising tour, which they did not have on this tour, but things are going to open up. There's no question about it. And, and these are one show cities. I'm going to point out again about the comparison to the rising tour, maybe not being the fairest uh, comparison because that show, as you know, had 11 new songs in it every night during that stretch. So while it was static, they were playing uh, nearly a dozen songs every night that hadn't been played uh, really ever before. So that is a, a key difference here, but I still feel confident that things are going are gonna to open up at some point. We're looking forward to it, but at the same time, this show hits hard. You do make a fair point about the new material because the one thing, 28 songs in Tampa and 25 songs in Kansas City, now that may have been, again, because of COVID, so we don't know what impact that had on the show length and all of that. But the three songs that were removed from Tampa to Kansas City were all off of Letter to You and Only the Strong Survive. So that is notable to point out. And we we lost Burning Train. We lost House of a Thousand Guitars. We lost Don't Play That Song. And in Kansas City, as you pointed out, If I Was the Priest wasn't played that night. So I agree. He should try and keep a healthy dose of that material in there. And it is a shame. I listened to the second performance of House of a Thousand Guitars from Atlanta. And he had some issues with it in Tampa. We know that. But I thought in Atlanta it worked really well. And I guess, as we talked about before, he must have seen something in the audience that made him think it wasn't right for the show. But I'd really like to see him come back to some of that stuff and give it another chance. Burn and Train is another one. Oh, I agree with you 100%. The more new stuff in, in the show, the better. I like to see, I, like, I want to see songs I haven't seen before in concert, whether it's haven't seen before ever or haven't seen in, in a long time. So yeah, the more new stuff, the better. And I hope that stuff does come back. But unfortunately, history does show that once a new song disappears early yeah. on in the tour, it does, it rarely ever comes back. So I'm hoping that doesn't apply here and that history does not repeat itself. You're right about that. And perhaps Burn and Train and especially House of a Thousand Guitars are not songs we should really expect. They're going to be played regularly from this point. But if I was a priest, definitely appears like it's going to stick around. And as great as it sounds, maybe that'll give them the impetus to try Janie Needs a Shooter. There's, And I, I know that some people are going to be like, we don't like that song. The Power of Prayer to me is a really good pop song. I think it would work well live, especially with this band. Let's get that in there. And there's other stuff on there. Same thing with Only the Strong Survive. Look, he put it out. Let's just keep the show with some, some fresh material. And as time has shown for his entire career, that is really what makes the Springsteen shows distinctive. Oh, oh, exactly. And I was listening to... Again, I was listening to Houston. Actually, I was listening to Dallas on E Street Radio earlier today, and the song Letter to You sounded phenomenal. It had a rock edge to it that I hadn't hadn't heard in, in, in Tampa. And so that's one that it has improved over the three weeks of the tour. I would love to see him rotate the Strong Survive material. It doesn't have to be the same two every night. And I know it that material is probably a lot more complex musically. So it might be difficult to have them learn a new one, you know, every two shows, but it's still new material. I want to hear him give it a shot. Definitely. I totally agree. And it'll be interesting to see how the tour continues from here. 
as we say, everyone was back last night in Tulsa and uh, fingers crossed. Actually, Hal, I believe Lisa Lowell was out. Oh, I, I just totally missed that, I guess. That's what I heard from Mr. Um, from Stan Goldstein on on on, on Facebook that she uh, uh, she uh, was uh, out. And she and we believe it's COVID. I have no idea. Oh, so Bruce did not because at the other shows he said Jake had COVID, Steve had COVID. He didn't mention that Lisa was out. Uh, I guess he did not, and and I don't know if he made any mention of it, but uh, that's what I read from Stan today. Okay, well, we'll have to confirm that. I did not know that. I thought when they said Jake was back that everyone was back. So hopefully, if Lisa has COVID, she's feeling okay and she'll be back soon. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I send out uh, healing thoughts to her and to everybody else in the band who has had COVID. I hope they all had a mild case. I, my, my case kind of knocked me on my ass for about three weeks. It wasn't symptomatic for that long, but I was exhausted for for two and a half weeks of, of that time. And I don't know how these guys can come back from having it and, and playing a two and a half hour, two hour and 45 minute show. So hats off to them. They're super, they must be super, super human in, in some fashion. Well, and with that, let's move to our main topic tonight. And it's a perfect segue because we're going to speak to someone right now who was within the East street bubble. And our guest today is Nikki Germain. She has just published a new book of her photos taken at uh, Liberty Hall in Houston, Texas, back in March of 74. The book is called Springsteen Liberty Hall. Uh, Nikki Germain, welcome to to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And, oh, thank you so much for being here. It's uh, We're really loving the book. Uh, as we were talking about before you came on the air, it captures such an incredibly rare period of time in the E Street Band. It does. It was a, a very small window of time when that version of the van existed after Vinny left the band, <clears throat> putting it politely. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and David Sanchez was already playing with the band. David brought on his friend, Ernest Carter, Ernest Boom Carter, to play drums. And they had a, a, a real strong interest in jazz. So there was that element that was part of the band at that time that, in reflection, Bruce really loved that version of the band. He actually said to me in one of our meetings that he wished he had had a little more time with them. But they left on their own accord uh, later that year and wound up, uh, then that's when they wound up advertising for a new drummer and a new piano player. And we know what happened from there. Yes. And, and of course... Boom Carter was the guy who got the drums right on Born to Run. So he, he may have been in the band for a short time, but he had a very huge role just, just in, that, in that drum part. He did, and he's an incredibly talented musician. Uh, Gary and I stayed with him and his wife recently in Charleston. They now live in Charleston. And uh, he has his own little recording studio there on his property. And, and uh, I was sort of blown away by listening to some of his music and his vocals. He's, he's quite an amazing musician. Take us back to the genesis of the book. You had shot these photos in 1974. And you are the first person on the show who's ever seen Bruce and the E Street Band prior to 1975, which is, I think, mind-blowing for both of us. What was it like back in 1974 seeing the band, and how did you come to approach them? I didn't really approach the band. I, I, knew, I went to Liberty Hall on occasion. You know, at that time I was a single mom of a two-year-old and working with a, an incredible 
commercial photographer, Ron Scott. I was his assistant and uh, running the studio for him. And somehow we can't, Mike Pilot, who was the CBS record promoter uh, at the time, from he was from Louisiana, had been transferred to Houston. And I had a lot of friends in Louisiana. I may have met him that way, or but somehow I wound up doing headshots for him and got to know him. He just called me one day and said, hey, Nikki, grab your camera and come down to Liberty Hall. There's a band I want you to meet. So I was familiar with the venue, and the people there were particularly nice. It was a very loose environment. It was um, like only maybe 400 people could get in there. It was folding chairs in front of a very low stage. It was very casual. There was one big old, big room upstairs that was the backstage, a big room with fluorescent lights, no private dressing rooms or anything like that. So I, I went down there and uh, met this band that nobody knew about. And it was their first trip to Texas. They were, <laughs> they had no money whatsoever. They, uh, this was apparently a venue that they were very familiar with and accustomed to the size of venue, and they, they liked performing in a, in a club like that. So I met them, and they were, at first, I noticed it was a very serious, quiet backstage environment compared to other bands. There was no alcohol of any kind except for just a few long neck beers, and there were no groupies and no drugs or anything like that. Bruce pretty much stuck to himself sitting there quietly in a chair with his guitar on his lap. I didn't have much interaction with him, very little, but I uh, talked to all the other members of the band, especially Clarence. Clarence was a lot older, very comfortable in his own skin, much more mature, and the other guys were like no more than 24, and Boom was even a lot younger than that. So I noticed that, and uh, I was 26 at the time, and I think they really like, kind of liked having sort of a cute gal take their pictures. Right. And, uh, you know, so the first, uh, and I actually went to the venue with my boyfriend. He was, he was a, a writer and wrote a lot for K, uh, KPFT, I believe it was. They, then when they got on stage, uh, I went out front and I had, I had brought my camera and two different lenses with me. And uh, they just exploded in the house at that night, Mike Pilot had invited pretty much everybody from the newspaper reporters, uh, critics, and and uh, radio stations, and had really made sure that the press was there. Plus, the it was broadcast on the radio by the public radio station. Every, every Thursday night, they would broadcast the Liberty Hall shows, and it just went out like wildfire. Nobody knew who he was, but by the next day, they had to add three more shows. So they were going to play from Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. Four shows total was what was planned. And they had to add three more shows. So they played two shows the next three nights. And I photographed all four days. Wow. Now, and in the book, you had said you were not familiar with their with their music at all. Is that no? Is that an exaggeration, or no? You really hadn't even heard a song from them. No, never heard anything. No, and um, but as soon as I did, I knew he was different. I mean, there was something very, very different, and uh, it was apparent to everybody in the room. 
And what happened when they left Houston, they went on to Austin. And by the time they got to Austin, where they were playing uh, the Dillo, the Armadillo World Headquarters, they were they were waiting for them because it was a there was a huge music scene in Texas at that time. You know, this was a time when it were some of the people that would play at Liberty Hall were like Linda Ronstadt, I believe, came there, and I never saw her there. But you know, uh, Asleep at the Wheel, uh, Lightning Hopkins. Kind of, you name it. Uh, I remember Ry Cooter was there. I really enjoyed his show. And uh, I, a, a very wild and crazy bunch was Doug Kershaw and his whole family who showed up at one night. It was It was really wild. <laughs> he played with his brother and his mother, <laughs> and the whole family came. So it was always just a little bit different. And Roberto Gonzalez, who was managing and part owner of, of Liberty Hall, was such a nice guy, and he made everybody feel really comfortable from the performers to the people who, who came there. It was a very laid-back environment. So you had shot the show, which I believe that was the March 7th show, right? The one that was done to bring in local press and radio to help try and promote the band. How did you wind up? Because you have the most amazing shots of the band off stage, including a couple of Bruce, uh, two of my favorite shots are on pages 89 and 90. They appear to be Bruce backstage, beautiful black and white shots. The one on 89, he's, he's holding a guitar in his hand. How did you go from shooting the show after you were invited to then getting that access with them off stage? Well, just about anybody could go backstage. It was really, it was... <laughs> the 70s, <laughs> I guess. You know, I mean, uh, well, first of all, I was invited by the promoter, um, Mike. And uh, so I, I didn't even think twice about it. And the band really loved having their picture taken. I, I Nobody was really trying to get their pictures. You know, I was the only one... I think there might have been somebody in the audience taking a couple of pictures, but I was the only one who was there with a camera. And I had no problem whatsoever getting up close and personal. It was a very comfortable place for me. I'd been working as a as an assistant to a commercial photographer. I'd been shooting a lot of my own photographs, none of which anybody was going to be interested in. You know, they were just for myself. I was interested, very interested in documentary photography. I was big fan of Mary Ellen Mark. And I, I really wasn't interested in shooting commercially at all. So this was a great opportunity for me to just document uh, the band. And uh, it felt, I, I didn't really think about it. I just did it. And I felt completely comfortable doing it. And they made me feel comfortable. It was really easy to hang out with them. They were very friendly. I would say most of the conversations I had, like I said, were with Clarence. I think my absolute favorite shot in the whole book is the portrait of Clarence. Uh, I, I, is that the one on page 15 where he's in the cowboy hat? No, it's the one where he is actually backstage with the sacks on his lap. Uh, oh, that, that's a great shot. Yeah, that is my favorite shot. Um, it, for a lot of reasons, there's a lot of nostalgic reasons for liking that shot now, now that uh, he's gone. It's such a terrible loss for the band. Uh, he, was, he was a very special human being. Some of the my favorite sh- 
uh, photos from the book are were it's like they're outside the uh, <laughs> the theater at the, at the front door. How, did you, was that an arranged shoot yeah. or, or how did that come about? Yeah, that <clears throat> after I'd spent all the time with them, I realized I just could not get a shot of the whole band together uh, on stage. It was impossible. It was much too small a venue. It was very dark, uh, and to get everybody to get back, you can see in a couple of the photographs that we used just to get a feeling for what it was like they're not the best pictures but but you get a sense of what the stage was like and uh how small it was and it was small it was really tiny and so i i suggested we do some photographs in front of liberty hall so i think it might have been like the last day they were there on it was a weekend and uh we got together and they they thought it was a good idea and it was funny because it wasn't easy getting them to really look at the camera and to cooperate with the shot. I wouldn't say they were uncooperative. That's not the word I would use, but, but I don't think they were particularly comfortable with it. Uh, they were just, you know, like Danny was okay. I think with it, Gary, Clarence, but Bruce and, and boom and, and David less so. And so I was really fortunate to even get anything out of that. Uh, and the one shot where Bruce is waving at the camera, you know, it's like, oh, I got his attention. <laughs> <laughs> because he tended not to really uh, look at me when I shot the photographs, which was fine. But in contrast, you know, like there's a couple of pictures, especially, well, with with Danny and Gary and Clarence, where they looked directly at the camera. You know, they had no problem with it whatsoever. Uh, it was a little bit like herding cats, you know? <laughs> but it worked. And and uh, it was a little, if I had wanted to print up, well, I did try to print up those photographs. They, they were shot with ectochrome. Now with the new technology of the digital technology of scanning transparencies and using Adobe Photoshop to make corrections, and to pull out information that you couldn't get if you just did a direct print from a transparency back in those days. The photographs turned out amazingly well. The color photographs, I was stunned when I saw what they looked like and what we could do with them to make them better uh, so that you could actually get that information and see what I had photographed. Couldn't have done it back in the day. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? 
And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. The shots are so vivid. For people who haven't seen the book yet, you should check it out because you've not seen the East Street Band in this time period with this kind of clarity and 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 what you captured in their eyes and and you, you can really feel it. And Bruce in his intro wrote that this was the before, and we understand what that meant because they would go on to worldwide fame, but they didn't know that in 1974 and. I just find it so unique what you captured here. Well, one of the things that was going on at the time, and the reason why I believe that environment was so serious, was because, well, first of all, they had no money whatsoever, they were, and they were really struggling. And their first two albums, which both of which I love, uh, had had been released and not really sold very well. Uh, Columbia was really thinking of dropping Bruce. In fact, they were going to do that. A couple of people within the organization were really campaigning to keep him on. And so they had kind of issued him a direct order. You know, you you better do something to save yourself, I guess. And that's when he was working on Born to Run. And um, I didn't really know any of this until after the fact. I didn't know what the reason was, but it became very obvious to me later on that that's what was happening. Mike Appel was there backstage, his manager, who he wound up having to sue for the rights to his music, which kept them further away from any kind of financial uh, success uh, because that went on for a good solid three years, I believe, where they couldn't make any money. And so, the, as Gary would say, you know, they, the cover band down the street in Asbury Park was making more money than they were. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we had Steve on the show and he told us a story which was just stunning that there was a band meeting where they were actually taking a vote on whether to leave Bruce. And he stood up and said, we can't do this. He ultimately worked out with Steve Popovich that they would go off and do the Ronnie Spector album. And that sort of saved things at the time. So it's fascinating to hear you talk about that. They really stuck it out through thick and thin. They 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 had to get other jobs. They were getting other gigs. They were doing everything they could do to hang on. And, and they stuck it out with them, you know, for a long time. I think for Gary, it was like 15 years before there was any real, real money. I mean, here was Bruce on the cover of Time and Newsweek and still no money. You know, they were just they were just still doing the same thing, the small gigs and so forth. Yeah, they actually toured a bit in 76 and 77. That was literally their only source of income during those years. As you said, they were they were having the lawsuit with, with Appel. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, it's interesting because they're still they, – they still have a good relationship now. They Or they do have a good relationship now. Mike Appel was at the um, symposium in Asbury Park where they invited me to come and talk about the book. I was I was actually kind of surprised that that I could actually 
be asked questions and be there for 45 minutes. <laughs> I just thought, <laughs> what am I going to talk about? I think even even Bob Santelli was a little concerned. He said, maybe you should have somebody else up there with you, Nikki, to talk about the music. And I said, and then Rich Russo said, no, just the two of us. And that worked out really well. It was really nice. Now, what happened after you took these photos in this in this uh, second weekend of, of March '74? Mm-hmm. One was published in Rolling Stone. You you included a a picture of the article with your with the with the picture you took, as right. well as well as the I guess the the full picture that in as well. What happened after that? Oh well, first of all, what, the reason why that photograph even appeared in Rolling Stone was because. Um, it was kind of like all everything collided all at once. I had, I had met the art director for Rolling Stone. He actually Mike Salisbury, who, who um, was not only the art director for Rolling Stone but the art director for West Magazine, and he was also teaching at Art Center. And uh, he was in our studio for uh, judging a, an art director's club show in Houston. And I met him, and he, he saw my photographs, and he liked them. And the bottom line was, when he got back to California, he wanted to start hiring me to shoot freelance in this area for Rolling Stone, which I started doing. My first assignment, which came about a month after I shot Springsteen, which was not for any assignment whatsoever, um, was to shoot the Smothers Brothers. And at any rate, so I had I established a relationship with Mike Salisbury, and he knew that I had these photographs. And when Springsteen and, and his now his new version of the band, the E Street Band, which was when that name moniker didn't start until after Roy and, and Max joined the band, actually, uh, he called me and asked me, he said they were going to be doing this article because Springsteen was going to come back to Texas in September to, you know, Liberty Hall was putting on a show at the, at a larger venue at a music hall. Did, could uh, I provide them with a photograph for the article? So um, I said, sure. So I picked that one. I thought it was unique and they paid me 50 bucks. (laughs) uh, So after that, nothing to be honest with you. Um, I wound up shooting for Rolling Stone for the next couple of years, uh, just freelance on occasion. I had, the last uh, assignment I had with them was just fantastic. It was an article on uh, Joaquin Jackson, a Texas Ranger who had discovered Johnny Rodriguez in, in jail. It was a great article, and I enjoyed it immensely, but I got really tired of, uh, of, of sort of the rock and roll part of it and there was a new art director and I didn't really want to continue working with that particular person Mike had left and then I wound up uh, leaving Houston I moved to San Francisco and just uh, lived my life without really (laughs) without really following um, uh, the band or any particular band for that matter and uh, pursued a lot of interests that I had. I had the opportunity to do many things I enjoyed. And then, I mean, these sort of, these just sat on the shelf. I took, I kept all my cameras and lenses that I used. I kept, uh, I would, uh, I would bought other cameras and I was doing some other shooting, but just casually. And then, but nothing on assignment, but I was always connected to 
the graphic arts industry. My my ex husband was a fine graphic artist. I I really had no clue that these photographs would be worth anything. That uh, anybody would want to see them. I, I remember thinking, well, who's ever going to want to see these? You know, I mean, just that was just it was it just never crossed my mind. Then in nineteen, I think it was like nineteen eighty three. Uh, and my daughter was about 12 years old, I believe, something like that. I can't remember exactly. She must have been much about, probably about 11, 12 years old. Anyway, Springsteen was coming to the Oakland Coliseum, and um, I asked her, I said, would you like to go see a show? And she said, yeah. So I called. It was, I think it was sold out. And um, I called Bill Graham's office. And uh, they call me back, and uh, I'd ask them, you know, if I could get in touch with Gary. And they call me back and said, "There are going to be two tickets for you, and we'll call and a couple of backstage passes." So I took my daughter to the show, and I had no idea what it was going to be like. And it was Nils was now on on stage with the band, Patty. Oh, I'm not sure about Nils, actually, but Stephen. Yeah, Nils would have been there. That would have been 1984 yeah. on the Born in the USA tour. Yeah, so that was Nils and then Patty, and it was such a long performance. I, I didn't expect that. I just remember my ears hurt, <laughs> and it was, and I, I really was uh, anxious, kind of anxious to get home because it was it had gone so, so long, and it was a school night, so... I, um, and we briefly met Gary backstage with his wife and, uh, and said hello. And then like 23 years went by after that. And I never saw the band, uh, didn't really know what was going on with them. I got this phone call on New Year's Day in 2011, and I didn't recognize the number, so I didn't pick up. And when I did get the message, it was Gary. And I thought, what the heck? He had gotten a call from Bill Whitbeck, who is the bass player for Robert Earl Keane. And Bill had been in the audience as a 17-year-old, I believe, that Saturday night at Liberty Hall. And he and his buddies just went nuts for the music. They had gone out and bought everything they could get their hands on, which wasn't a lot because there wasn't a lot available, but they found the records. He decided he wanted to be a bass player. And he didn't, of course, he became a bass player. And he wound up writing an article about Gary's performance at Liberty Hall for, I think it was for a bass magazine. And he called Gary and asked him if he had any pictures. And Gary said, no, but I know somebody who does. <laughs> and, oh, wow. and, if I told Bill Whitbeck when I saw him at the Ryman last year, I said, you know, if you hadn't made that phone call, I wouldn't be here. It's that's, that's really amazing. And just the turn that life takes. Absolutely. It's, a, it's absolutely true because at that point I said to Gary, I said, yeah, I've got pictures and you can have whatever you need. So I sent him some color, uh, transparencies, uh, uh, some other color stuff, but then I realized I had all this black and white, and I, I'd kind of, you know, I'd seen, I'd brought him out before for something for a silent auction for something in uh, Houston, and uh, that was about it. I did that as a favor for someone. I think my daughter told uh, the promoter that I had these pictures. At any rate, I 
decided I would scan, I would make scans of the uh, black and white images and send them to Gary just so he could see what it was. So I sent him these, the CD of the images and he, and he called me up and he said, my God, he said, we don't have anything like this. You've got to do something with it. I thought, when? I had like, <laughs> I had a 24-7 career in real estate at that point in Sonoma and uh, California, Sonoma, Napa. And that was a 30-year stint. <laughs> and it was very, it was very, very time consuming. There was no way I could do anything with the photographs that would do them justice at that time. So, you know, Gary and I kept in touch. I actually saw them play and I saw him for the first time in like 24, 25 years when uh, a friend of mine and I went to hear them play at Jazz Festival. I think that was in 2012. And then in 2014, again, we saw them at Jazz Festival. And that's when I started really seriously looking at what could be done with the photographs. I went to Asheville, North Carolina, where Rocky Kenworthy has his studio called Dot Editions. And Rocky sat me down one day and he just said, he said, look, this is what you need to do. You need to write your recollections. You need to work on the idea of a book. At the time, I was only interested in just making prints. As he talked, I just thought, there is no way I couldn't even begin this until, um, until I retire. And that's basically what happened. I retired from real estate, and about the same time I retired, I got a call from Gary again. And this time, he was, he was actually going through a divorce, and we started having a conversation, and we talked for about three or four months before we got together, and we've basically been together ever since. Oh, wow. And then with the book, how did it get to, how did Bruce find out and, and how did he offer his help or what happened with him? Well, what happened was I moved to Nashville in 2019 and I, originally Gary and I weren't going to live together, but then COVID hit. <laughs> <laughs> and so shortly after I moved to Nashville, we uh, decided that we would um, be going through that together. And um, I had made Nashville my home. And one day he said to me, do you mind if I show, send some of these photographs to Bruce? And I just thought, oh boy, here we go. So I said, okay. And he, he sent him, texted him and sent him a couple of photographs. And he said, wow. He said, where did you get these? And long story short, what happened was I introduced myself to Bruce by text. And, um, <laughs> and then we had a phone conversation. And he said, and I told him, I said, I'm thinking about doing this book, but I don't want to do anything without your blessing. And which was true. I said, there was no way I was going to do it without his blessing. And he said, he said, well, thank you. And then he said, what can I do to help? And I said, I said, well, we know you can write. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he thought he was laughing. And, I, and ultimately, he agreed to uh, do the preface for the book. 
And then I knew I was off and running. A, a number of other coincidences happened. I had met this wonderful photographer uh, who lives in Napa. Her name is Norma Iquintana. And she had done a, this beautiful book on traveling family circuses. And she told me, she said, Nikki, you have to get in touch with this designer, Yolanda Cuomo. And she kept insisting. And then when I went on her website, I thought, oh, my God, she's not going to want to do some book on rock and roll. She had all these fabulous uh, books she had done. But um, and long story short, when I got in touch with her, as soon as I mentioned Springsteen, well, she lived in we, we lives in Weehawken, New Jersey. <laughs> and she's like, since I mentioned Springsteen, she lost her mind. So um, I, there was, she was totally on board and um, turns out that she's also Pete Souza's designer. So she has designed all of Pete Souza's very successful books on his uh, photographs he did during the Obama presidency. So, um, and then Pete Souza saw the photographs and he was amazing. He he wanted to do a two-hour Zoom call with me, and that's what we did. And he gave me all kinds of wonderful advice. And then Yolanda introduced me to someone that could do these stunning images. Uh, he took the he took the black and white negatives and printed them all in the dark room. And he's a master printer. So the reason. And the reason why those images are done so beautifully is because both Rocky Kenworthy on the color and Chuck Kelton on the black and white did such a spectacular job of reproducing those images, which were then scanned. And the photographs themselves and the scans were sent to this incredible printer in Venice, Italy. Uh, wow. And the whole point for me was to make sure this book was turned out to be stunningly beautifully reproduced, beautifully designed, and was affordable for the fans because it was an extremely expensive proposition. And the only way it was going to get done right is if I did it myself, self-published, because any publisher was going to make all kinds of shortcuts. Hmm. And it would not have turned out that way. Well, you did an amazing job because the book is just simply gorgeous and it's laid out beautifully and the pictures pop. The black and white photos are, they're really just stunning. So uh, I really enjoy taking a look at it. Flynn had bought me a copy when he was at the symposium and then I saw him and when I got my hands on it, I, I was really blown away because I wasn't expecting it to have such an impact on me. Well, I think uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, as I told you, I started collecting photography and I, and I have a, a library of, of photography books. I have a bachelor of fine arts in studio art and my teacher at the University of Texas, who was teaching photography at the time in the art department, not as a journalism uh, subject, but as, an, as, a sub, as part of your uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts, he was one of the WPA photographers. His name was Russell Lee. He had such a, he just really changed the whole path of my life. He completely changed after taking his course. It was all about seeing not technical at all. 
but just about how you frame the photograph, how you, how you, you basically have two chances to edit your photograph. One, first when you take the picture, and secondly, when you go through your photographs. So those two steps are critically important. And if you notice in the book, every one of those pictures is full frame. There is not, right. there is not one picture that's cropped. And that's, that's very important to me because you really want, and you do have to shoot a number of photographs to get exactly what you want. I mean, like the picture of Clarence, for instance, there were two images almost identical, but one he's looking directly at me and the sax isn't totally in the picture just the way I wanted. The second picture, when he glanced away and I got the next shot, I just, I, I think I just got lucky that it was framed just the way I wanted it to be. Or the image of Danny looking, leaning in and straight at me with the dog <laughs> in the frame. You know, I mean, I didn't plan that, but the dog was there made it so much more interesting. Or the photograph of Clarence back in the uh, backstage with all the legs you know, of the chairs and the gals and their shoes. I mean, it dates the photograph beautifully because you can see the fashion and, and, and gives you a sense of that's the backstage, you know, that's what it looked like. A lot of that was, you know, just being fortunate enough to be there, but you have to be there. You know, most of showing of photography is you got to show up and really be there and be present and not just sit back and observe with a long lens, but you know, using that 28, you had to get up close and personal. Well, some of those onstage photos of Bruce in the book, you are uh, very upfront and personal. And those are some of my favorites where you, you really capture the energy coming out of them and, and the music coming out of them. Well, the stage was pretty tiny and it was, you know, just a at the most, a couple of feet up off the floor. So those cigarettes you see along the, <laughs> the edge of the stage, those are the, the audiences. Oh, wow. Uh, there's a, a, a color photograph in there of, the, of someone just leaning in and giving Bruce a sip of their the wine out of their wine bottle. Um, and, uh, I mean, it, it, Gary um, said to me, that's the kind of venue that they were extremely used to playing. They were very comfortable with. And obviously, Bruce is very comfortable with interacting with the crowd. There's also a rawness to the photos. And we, well, I first saw the band in 1984 and Flynn first saw the band in 1988. So we never experienced this period. And I think a lot of our audience didn't experience this period, which is one of the reasons why it makes the book so interesting. Well, that's, you know, it's interesting because um, one of the things that happened, well, there was a couple of things that happened. I met um, Bob Santelli when he came to the house to talk to Gary about putting a show together at Asbury Park. And we were sitting outside on the on our screen-in porch. It was during COVID, so we were being very careful. And uh, Bob kept talking about He's, he's, Bob has known everybody in this band since the early 70s. You know, he grew up with these guys. He was from the shore. Um, and he's been writing about rock and roll ever since and had published many books, as it turned out. And 
and uh, curated all the rock and roll museums, you know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Music Experience, the Grammy Museums, and now he's the executive director of the archives. And um, so he was uh, sitting there talking to Gary, he kept talking about his favorite time, his favorite version of the band, which was before they became famous. Uh, and um, so when they got through talking, I said, well, would you like to see some photographs? And um, Bruce had already said he was for this, but I was still trying to figure out how I was going to do it because I don't write. And I knew that I needed a writer. And um, I, I didn't think about that when I was showing it to him, but uh, when I brought the photographs down, he, he kind of lost his mind. <laughs> and he said, where in the world, you know? And I said, well, I told him a little bit. And he said, Nikki, I'm not kidding you. He said, these are really, really good. He said, what can I do to help? And I, the same question, you know, that Bruce asked me. And I said, I need a writer. And he said, I, you got it. And uh, he agreed to do this piece for the book and help me in a lot of other ways as well. Uh, he's been so supportive. And um, so now Bob is on board. So now I've got Bruce agreeing to do the preface, Bob agreeing to do the, his piece. Uh, Gary had already written his, his recollection back in 2014, had just fired off what he remembered about that trip on the train, and the whole thing was just uh, quite an event. So uh, I had uh, the makings for my book. And... Uh, then Yolanda took it the rest of the way by introducing me to Chuck Hilton to do the prints. And we ultimately found uh, this, this one printer in Italy that we knew could really do justice to the black and white images in particular, because was, I was so critical, because they're really the strongest images, in my opinion. So um, everything just came together. Um, of course... And then it comes out just before the tour, which has had its pluses and minuses. The <laughs> the plus being it's out there during the tour, but the minus being that I'm trying to market a book while I'm on tour with the band and we're in a bubble. And uh, But yesterday, I went to the site of where Liberty Hall used to be with a local um, ABC news reporter here in Houston who wanted to interview me on the site where it used to be, which is on the other, on the other side of the stadium, not far from where we're staying. And uh, it's, it's funny because uh, Bruce does describe it as the dusty outposts of, of Houston, but it's downtown. <laughs> it was downtown, but it's, you know, poetic license you know uh probably felt that way to these guys from new jersey that's really something that you're sitting right now just a few blocks away from the site and that bruce is going to play a show there tomorrow night almost 50 years later just the idea that he's still doing it would you have ever thought in 1974 (laughs) that bruce springsteen would be playing shows in 2023 i'm sure you couldn't even conceive 2023 (laughs) well i'm sure that they didn't either I'm sure that I, nobody would have ever known that. Of course, um, it's 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 interesting because um, you know uh, I was. He asked me, you know, what it was like uh, to if I had any any uh, feelings about 
deja vu or whatever after coming back here and then seeing the band playing now. And I said, actually, when they played in Dallas and they were, and they, uh, Stephen wasn't there and they brought, they brought Gary up front uh, along with Anthony and, and Jake, and they brought him up to the front of the stage. Um, They, it, it felt more like that old virgin because Gary and Bruce started interacting the way they used to, because now Gary had to step up. He was, he was the only background singer. Well, I guess uh, Clarence did some singing, but but uh, at Liberty Hall there was one guitar, one sax, one bass, two keyboards, and the drums, and that's it. So when they played in Dallas, and Gary was brought up front, now he had to sing some backup, and uh, I Bruce was just as loose as I've ever seen him. He was really having a blast, and um, hopefully that'll kind of continue through the rest of these shows because he the energy was terrific. So it it, it was the first time I kind of felt like, oh, this is like the old days. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. It is very interesting that we're talking to you about about this, about the book, that the pictures you took in Houston. Here you are in Houston. Yeah. And what's it, uh, I mean, compare photographing them then with, with now. Well, um, <laughs> First of all, a little different. But. First of all, they're they're better dressed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> although Gary and Clarence made a particular effort to to look pretty sharp, uh, but Bruce, as you can tell in on most of those pictures, I mean, his, his clothes are pretty dis, disreputable. They're, they're, uh, the one image in the back of the book, the last one of Bruce with his back to me and his pants, you know, are just, you know, falling apart. Uh, my designer wanted to make that a little photograph. And I said, Oh, no, <laughs> we're gonna blow that one up. Uh, so there, you know, they really were str- had no money. I mean, they were really struggling. But the guys had, a, um, had gone to a Western shop. So the, the, the hats were purchased in, uh, I think Danny and Gary and Clarence all purchased cowboy hats. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that was a, that's a theme in, in, the, in the book and the essays about the, everybody well, wearing cowboy hats and cowboy boots. Yeah, Jimmy Spheres opened up and, uh, and Bruce's comment was all he gets to was cowboy hats, not only in the audience, but also um, with the guys on stage. It was interesting that the culture at the time was, yeah, people were in cowboy hats, but they weren't cowboys. And most of them were just like hippies, you know, um, <laughs> and um, they weren't, they, they were, and here these guys are wearing cowboy hats and they have on platform boots. So 
wasn't exactly uh, the total look, but uh, you know, I guess if you feel like you're in Texas, you get a cowboy hat. I think they were, um, the day after Liberty Hall, they opened at Liberty Hall, the, um, one of the local uh, radio stations had Bruce come in and um, so they had been broadcast the night before, which, you know, on the radio, which, you know, got word out really fast. But then they got these great reviews in the newspaper, uh, newspaper critics, both wrote uh, great reviews. And then uh, this one radio station had Bruce come in and then had him come back with the band. And they actually played, I think, about a one hour set or something like that. Uh, live in the in the in the studio, so you know the show's just sold out. You know, and <laughs> and it was a it was only a venue of about four hundred people max, three hundred fifty, four hundred. So it's pretty pretty intimate. Yeah, that, it was interesting in the book of talking about Fever getting a request on stage, and then oh, he yeah. actually worked up he worked up a version of that he ended up playing in this in that radio station studio exactly what i i guess what happened was it wasn't meant to happen but what i understand was uh i think appell or somebody sent mike pilot uh this uh this song that wasn't meant to be released yet and uh and apparently it wound up just going viral on the radio uh while they were here so it helped. <laughs> it got played. It got it got played. It was uh, it was an amazing um, experience for me. Remembering exactly what happened when it happened during all those shows and each night is impossible for me to remember. When I'm shooting, I don't, and I think any photographer will tell you this: they're concentrating so much on what they're seeing that they're not really hearing the performance the way other people do. So when they came back to Houston to the music hall and Gary called me and asked me if I wanted to come to the show, I said, sure, but I did not take my camera because I had not really heard them perform in, in the sense that the way everybody else had. So I wanted to hear the performance. So I did not take a camera with me. Oh wow, that would that would have been interesting too. Were they were they better dressed? Uh, well, by, by that time, by that time, first of all, it was a bigger venue and a bigger stage. And by that time, Roy and Max had joined, so I would say their influence was probably pretty important in terms of how they looked. <laughs> and um, it was. It, I don't think the access was there. Uh, I probably could have had that access, but I just didn't ask for it, and I didn't. I didn't feel I needed it. I had so many pictures from the um, four nights at Liberty Hall that I just didn't see the need. Uh, and I, it wasn't something that I was trying to do. It just sort of happened. Nice little happy accident, right? Very much so. I mean, it was, uh, it was just like everything just came together in a way that no one could have ever planned the story is just, it really is crazy to think that you took these photos almost 50 years ago. You sat on them. Mm -hmm. They lead to you finding love. What a remarkable story. Well, it you know, uh, it was really Gary's uh, idea from the beginning that I do something with these. When he first saw the photographs, he said, oh, 
you've got to do something with these. Uh, and he came up with the idea of me doing a limited edition portfolio. And I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. And then it grew to the book and then everything else that would be involved. And that's when I slowed everything down and said, I can't do this until I retire. Uh, by the time Gary got back in touch with me in 2018, I had already uh, put the wheels in motion to retire. And I told him, I said, well, this, your timing is good because I'm retiring. I'm moving to New Orleans. And he said, oh, so, uh, you know, I hadn't moved yet. I didn't, uh, I didn't sell my house till uh, later on. And I, uh, the following year was when I was really planning on making the move. And uh, by that time, he and I uh, started seeing each other in September of 2018. And we were going back and forth between Nashville and California. And uh, then one day he said, would you consider moving to Nashville instead of New Orleans? And I said, well, that depends. <laughs> so um, ultimately, you know, it, it became very obvious that, that, uh, that the decision to move to Nashville was the only one I could make. We, we are so compatible and uh, it's, you know, when you're in your seventies, it's, it's, it's different than being impulsive kids, and uh, uh, it's it's very sweet. Uh, the idea of the limited edition portfolio actually has come to fruition. Uh, I do have uh, a beautiful handmade um, box set of sixteen black and white prints and one color print from the series that I've done an edition of 35. It was a very uh, costly uh, project, but uh, it's beautiful. And um, it will be available to someone who's a serious collector of photography or of Springsteen. But the book, I think, it even surprised me how it turned out. I expected it to be really beautiful, but it really took my breath away when I first saw what they call the folding grabs, which is before they actually, there's off the press, but before they actually bind the book. And uh, when I saw those, it just took my breath away. I, I never expected those photographs to reproduce that way. They're just, it, it, it blew my mind. Well, they are simply beautiful, mm -hmm. and the book is is absolutely gorgeous, and really is. Now, you've set up a website to to sell copies, right? It's uh, yeah. Can you can you can you give it because I don't want to get I don't want to get it wrong. No, I I'm happy to, and it also gives me an opportunity to explain to those who um, got really frustrated in the beginning. Um, uh, you know, I was sort of forced in the position of having to um, get some books here, even though they weren't going to get here right away because they were coming by ship from Italy and it takes a long time to get those. And, uh, but yet the symposium wanted me to have some books. So I, I had some air freighted over a handful. It was, uh, it's not something that you can do a lot of because there's, it's pretty expensive. So, um, I had enough books to have some at the symposium, but, uh, the website took a while to get going. It's much more back-end technical stuff than I ever imagined. We It's called uh, www.springsteenlibertyhall.com. It's that simple. And um, uh, it is now 
working for any U.S. or Canadian orders. Um, I can see why a lot of people don't self-publish when it comes to uh, distributing a book. Um, I have probably half of what, 5,000 copies total in, the, in this edition. I'm not sure there will be a second edition, uh, but about half of the books are in Europe. Most photographers don't really have their books in Europe to fulfill, and now um, a place for fulfillment in Europe. And now I know why, because you have to get a, a VAT number, and you have to report all your the tax on all your sales to all these different countries. And now the UK and the EU are are different, and uh, it's very complicated. So we're just waiting for that number to come to me so that I can release those books for the folks that want them in Europe and the UK or, well, okay, so or any other place in the world for that matter. Just to repeat, America and Canada, SpringsteenLibertyHall.com. Yes. And at the same for at the Springsteen Liberty Hall, also people in the and outside of those markets can let us know they're interested and as soon as we can fulfill those orders we'll let them know all they have to do is leave a message on on the email there all right so they they can get put on on a waiting list for it well yeah it'll i'm sure there'll be books available we have um like i said about half the books are in a fulfillment center in in the netherlands it's very very frustrating for me to know they're sitting there and people are waiting for them but i can pretty confidently say that they will be available bef much before uh, we get to Europe. Okay, that sounds great. But by the end of April, then that sounds well, that's perfect I, Yeah, I think it will be be long before then, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm anticipating maybe two, three more weeks we might see that um, open up. And it's important to note the book is very much worth the wait. Yeah, and I'd love to be able to do book signings, but um, uh, it's going to be tough because they've tightened up this bubble. You know, we've had now three people in the band test positive for COVID, and, uh, you know, we're being particularly careful with um, with with Gary. I mean, there's only one base one bass player <laughs> there's some there are a couple of different guitarists but there's only one bass player there's only one drummer there's only one piano player you know we got to make sure these guys stay healthy for people that want signed books they can ask for them and we'll try to get those to them and hopefully by the time we get to europe things will loosen up a little bit and maybe with some of these fan clubs they have over there that do these wonderful events and that, that, that we might be able to do something when we get there but who knows we just have to wait and see well we hope that can happen and certainly we wish everyone in the band safe travels and hope that the three people who are currently sick are feeling okay and recover quickly we don't i don't think anybody's gotten particularly ill from it i think we might see Susie and steve back for the houston show uh let's hope um but um we're just you know taking one day at a time 
Sounds good. We're Stay seeing, healthy. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of the inside of nice hotels. <laughs> <laughs> Not getting out, you know, it, 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 I think everybody was a little bit more optimistic in the beginning, but this has really been a dose of reality, so... It's funny because last year, I know on Eddie Vedder's solo tour, they were hit with COVID and Glenn Hansard, who's in the band, he said, we're in our hotel rooms, we get in a car, we play the show, nobody's allowed backstage, and then we do the reverse and somehow we still all got hit with it. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, uh, some of them know where they got it, some of them don't. Uh, It's in the end... Like Nils has been masking up everywhere, everywhere. I mean, he's he's very careful, and yet, you know, he tested positive. So it's random. It is very difficult to prevent a hundred percent. That is that is for sure. Well, and everybody's vaxxed, so nobody's getting really super sick, and that that's that's good. You know, it's just that if you test positive and you're even if you're asymptomatic, you've got to stay away. So there's really no other option. Well, thank you so much for doing this. This has just been so enjoyable for us to hear these stories and we really appreciate it. Oh, and thanks for having me. It's my first ever podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We we hope it was fun and and, and easy. And uh, we really love talking to you as, as Hal said, hearing stories of, of that particular era were I was like, I would have been three years old at the time and it's obviously nowhere near a, a concert. So hearing firsthand experiences uh, is just, just very, very valuable as a, as a huge Bruce fan. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I, I, I just, in, in closing, I just wanted to say a number of people have asked me, Hey, Nikki, are you going on the tour with Gary? And I thought, well, what would I do? Stay home, you know, an empty house, you know, at, <laughs> at uh, the other thing is I've never had this shared experience with Gary before. And like I said, we're both in our seventies and you know, this is, uh, this is a time in our life where we want to be together and, uh, staying home just wasn't an option. Sounds good. Well, enjoy it. Yeah. Thank you very much, you guys. And, uh, Hey, I hope I see you at one of the shows. That would be amazing. That would be great. And please give Gary our best. I will do that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Once again, that was Nikki Germain. She just published a book of her fantastic photos that she took at the Liberty Hall shows in Houston, Texas, back in March of 74. And if you're interested in getting a book, SpringsteenLibertyHall.com, and uh, she should be able to hook you up. Great story she had. Really had a lot of fun talking to Nikki. Yeah, as as you mentioned, we didn't see Bruce in <laughs> before nineteen. Well, you saw him in eighty four. I saw him in eighty eight. And so to hear stories about the before, as Bruce called it, that's just just amazing to hear firsthand accounts of of, of those shows. Yeah, it's just so cool. It really is. And I think that brings us to the end of another episode. We do want to point out we did our first ever live stream this past weekend, which was really just tremendous fun and i think the people who participated with us enjoyed it as well oh and i had a great time too and it was we took calls in both video video form people called in basically they were on camera asking us questions and then we had a chat going on at the same time and people asked questions in in that form as well and it was just just had a blast and it was just great interacting with other people you know i mean 
Hal and I talk to each other all the time. So to have other people was, was, was fr- pretty fun. Yeah, it's certainly good to have some new blood instituted into the show. That's for sure. <laughs> very true. Very true. If you want to know more about our Patreon page and the stuff that we're doing, we're going to be doing the live stream regularly and other content. Check out patreon.com backslash MBTB podcast. On Twitter, of course, we're also at NBTB Podcast. None But the Brave is produced by Bull Market Entertainment and presented by Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks again to Nikki Germain for joining us and for Hal Schwartz on Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening and we'll see you further on up the road. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, And I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.